Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. We have two readings today. The first is Isaiah. Isaiah 9, verses 2 and 6. It's Isaiah 9, verses 2 and 6. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The second reading is John 6. John 6. Verses 16 through 21. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Good morning and Merry Christmas. Good morning. It's great to be together. Uh, Thank you, Larry, for reading and. Made Larry work a little extra hard today. He earned that. Uh, <laughs> well, we don't pay our scriptures. Um, yeah, so we are going to be in, uh, actually, we're just going to be in the John passage. I just wanted us to have that Isaiah passage in our minds so you can open to John 6. That's where we're going to be. Um, as you do that, I want to say thank you for the Christmas gift on Christmas Eve. Thank you so much for, for thinking of us. And I say that on behalf of, the, on behalf of the Johnsons as well. We really do appreciate your, your, your generosity and your thinking of us that way. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll get right into the text. Gracious Father, thank you so much for the joy of celebrating uh, the birth of our Savior. And uh, yeah, just what a, what a joy, no matter what our circumstances, to remember, to celebrate, to rehearse again the, uh, the world-changing, life-shaking uh, truth that Christ, our Savior, is born. 
And so we would just look to you now uh, as we um, tease out another thread of what it means for Christ to be our Savior and what it means that you were born. Uh, and we just ask that you'd speak to us today, Lord. On this last Sunday of, the, of 2021, uh, we need what we read about in this passage, is, this passage this morning. And so I just pray you, by your Holy Spirit, would apply to our hearts and our lives. Uh, whether we're here in the room or watching online or we'll catch this later on, use it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There were no Christmas lights this year in Mears Park. And if you want to know whose fault it was, you can blame the squirrels. It was their fault. Uh, Mears Park is in Minnesota. It's actually in downtown St. Paul. It's one of the city parks that they have in St. Paul, Minnesota. And usually, most years, uh, a group called Friends of Mears Park puts on a light show. They'll put on a, a holiday display. You can imagine what that'd be like, Christmas lights hanging you know, all over the place in the park and off the trees and so on. And uh, they actually pay for it out of their own funds. This friends group, Friends of Mears Park, they pay for it that way. Public funds aren't used to light up the park. Uh, but last year, the, the squirrels in the park chewed through the wires. And I don't know if there was a new vendor or if the vendor was using a new product, but the vendor that put up the lights for this for the, for the, in the park had used a coating on the wires to protect them. But it turns out that, I, I believe what I read was it was made from some kind of a corn product, and uh, that tastes great to squirrels. And so the squirrels actually, and it wasn't just like one or two instances, they chewed through a lot of the wires in the park. And so they kept having to replace them and reimburse the vendor for these wires, and it's just how the whole thing went down. And so this year, they made the decision to not have any lights. I think they put on some kind of light show or laser show instead, which the general consensus was it was kind of lame. Uh, but there were no lights, no traditional lights hanging from the trees because the Friends of Mears Park decided they just couldn't afford it because of the squirrels. Well, the squirrels may have turned out the lights in Mears Park, but no one could stop the light of Jesus Christ shining into this darkness. And, and that's what we celebrate, right? That's what we celebrated yesterday on Christmas Sunday, and we're still celebrating it. Uh, this morning, the first Sunday, the Sunday, Christmas Sunday, I like to think of it as uh, the Sunday after Christmas. Uh, John chapter 1, I'm going to be in John this morning, I found myself looking at chapter 1 of John. John talks about the birth of Jesus differently than the other Gospels do. Uh, he talks about it in theological terms, and, and you definitely get that, that sense of light in verses 4 and 5. So John reflects on the birth of Jesus. He says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And so John's telling us there, when Jesus was, was born, God showed, shone his light, divine light, into the deep darkness of, of this world, and nobody could stop it. John says, the darkness could not overcome God's light. Isaiah used the same kind of language in that other passage I asked that, we be, that be read. Uh, 700 years, more than 700 years before Christ was born, Isaiah, God gave him a prophecy in which he described the birth of the Messiah in terms of light shining into the darkness. And so you get that Isaiah 9, 2. Um, it's actually a whole sermon unto itself. Verse 1 describes all this darkness. And actually all of chapter 8 even goes deeper into the darkness. And then you get this announcement in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And, and then if there's any doubt in our mind who the light is, he tells us a few verses later, verse 6. 
unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And so you think of that Isaiah passage, uh, the, the, the light that's shown in the darkness, verse 2, is the child who's born in verse 6, and the child who's born in verse 6 is none other than the one John introduces us to in chapter 1. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and that's what I want to think about on this Sunday after Christmas. I want to think about how Jesus is the light who dispels the darkness. Jesus is the light who dispels the darkness. But I actually want to be a little more specific than that. I don't want to talk about gen darkness in general terms. I want to talk about the darkness of fear. Jesus is the light who dispels the darkness of fear. Uh, in our Advent series this year, the last, the, the, those four Sundays before Christmas, uh, I ended up talking about fear. We, we did this little series, for those who are visiting, we did this series on kind of why Jesus was born, the reasons for the season, and we talked, we looked at some very untraditional Christmas passages, but they talk about the reason Christ was born. And we ended up talking about fear a couple of different times, and it really struck a nerve. It struck a nerve for a lot of people. It struck a nerve for me, and I had several people tell me after some of those sermons that really, you know, touched where I'm wrestling with these days and where our world is wrestling with. And so I decided to, to come at it one more time, to talk about fear one more time here at the end of the year. Um, I made the case a couple weeks ago that we live in fearful times. There's lots of things that people are afraid of. And I don't think that has changed in the last two weeks. I don't think anything's done to make that go away. So we're going to end the year by talking about how Jesus is the light who dispels the darkness of fear. And to do that, I want to go to John chapter 6. And again, this is not a traditional Christmas passage. This will be the year we, we will remember as the year when Don didn't preach any Christmas passages for Christmas. But uh, because this is also not one we usually think of as a Christmas passage. And yet, it completely hinges on the reality of Christmas, right? What we're talking about uh, this and what we're celebrating this time of year. And so uh, turn to John 6. And what I want to do on this Sunday after Christmas is I simply want to tell this story, this, this story about a very dark situation that the disciples find themselves in. And I want to show how Jesus shines into that dark situation. And then at the end, I want to leave you with two bright lamps. Right? We'll talk about two bright lamps that help us when we are afraid in our own dark situations. So we'll start with the story itself, and it really, it starts with a storm. This story, if you really kind of, if you had to summarize the passage we're looking at this morning, it's about a, a storm or a terrifying tempest. Because whatever word you use, the point is that there's this frightening situation the disciples find themselves in. They're in this bad, it's bad weather, as we'll see, and, and it's frightening. It's a terrifying situation for these men. But before I talk about the storm that they find themselves in, let's talk about why they're in it in the first place. We need to set a little context here. So I'll start with verse 16. It says, When evening came, his disciples, the his is Jesus, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started to cross the sea to Capernaum. So this comes immediately, if you have a, your Bible, you can look and see what the passage immediately before it was the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus fed uh, 5,000 people miraculously. This is an extraordinary miracle that he does, and we always point out it wasn't only 5,000, not that it's any less spectacular if it was only 5,000, but it's probably more like 15 to 20,000 when you factor in the women and the children who were there. But he does this miracle, he takes a little boy's lunch, feeds thousands of people, and John is the one who emphasizes this more than the others. They decide, let's make him king. 
I mean, this is, this is just what we need. You know, if anybody can take out the Romans uh, and restore justice and, and goodness and all those wonderful things, uh, it's going to be this guy who feeds us in the wilderness here, miraculously. And so they want to make Jesus king. It says that specifically. John tells us that. However, that's not what Jesus is here for, not this time. And so he leaves, and we're told that. It's the last verse there. It's verse 15. He withdrew again to the mountain. So Jesus goes off. He leaves this crowd that wants to make him king. And Matthew and Mark tell us this exact same story, and I'm going to lean on them a couple of different times to give us some details. John's going to tell his story the way he tells it for reasons I'll explain. But Matthew and Mark tell us why Jesus went off by himself. He went off to pray. And John doesn't say that part here, but they tell us very specifically, Jesus went off, off by himself to pray. So we pick up in verse 16, and we're given a time indicator. It's evening, which actually doesn't mean it's dark. I don't know about you. When I think of evening, I'm thinking 7, 8 o'clock. You know, but, but actually, the way, this Greek, the way they thought of evening is it's the time right before sunset. So for us, we might say late afternoon. So, so it's, kind of, it's a late afternoon, so there's still some light. The disciples get in the boat. They, they probably, they seem to have this idea, we're gonna, we'll, get, we'll get to where we're going before it's real dark. It'll be fine. No worries. And so uh, they get into the boat. And again, John doesn't tell us why they got into the boat, but Matthew and Mark are very specific that Jesus told them to. They tell us very specifically that Jesus told them to go to Capernaum to go to this, in kind of the other side. The sea we're talking about is the Sea of Galilee. It's actually technically a lake, but it, they always refer to it as the sea. And, and he tells them, go over to Capernaum, and I'll meet you later, is kind of what they've been told. So they're not, they don't forget Jesus, right? We're going to learn in a, in a bit here that Jesus isn't with them. It's not because they messed up. It's because he told them to go ahead without him. So they get into the boat. They're going to set sail. They're headed for Capernaum. But this quiet little boat trip very quickly goes, goes sour. It, it turns into this terrifying situation. And John, in his telling of what happened, emphasizes the fear more than the others do. And he really emphasizes it more than the other things that went on that, that day. Uh, he emphasizes, and he's actually got four different details. I just want to show you these. Four details in the story where he emphasizes in kind of a literary way, if you think of it that way, he emphasizes how frightening a situation it was. And you always have to remember, with John, John was there. Right? He's not reporting some story secondhand that somebody told him about. He's reporting what he went through. He was one of the, the fishermen in the boat. And so he says, beginning of his description, he says, here's what happened, verse 17, it was now dark. So we left in the evening, but now it's dark. So it was now dark. That's detail number one. And I, it seems like a, almost a throwaway detail, but don't throw it away. It's, it's important in John's account of this. Uh, it's dark. It's nighttime now out on the Sea of Galilee. And this is actually a theme. This is a, darkness is a theme that runs through the Gospel of John. If you study John on his own, um, a lot of times in John, darkness is more than just darkness. Uh, you know, and I won't say, it's not like every single time, but a lot of the times when John reports to us that it's dark, he doesn't just mean that the sun went down, he means it's spiritually dark. And one of the best examples comes later in the Passion narrative when, when we're told it's dark. Uh, and, and he's clearly talking about more than just the sun went down. He's talking about a spiritual darkness. And I think that he's, he wants us to see that here. It was now dark, not just physically, 
but spiritually it's dark. And I say that because of the second detail, because the second detail is that Jesus isn't there. The absence of Jesus is why it's dark. And so he says, and, and Jesus had not yet come to them. And this is interesting. John hasn't told us yet that Jesus isn't there. So if you read Mark, it's Mark 6 or Matthew's account of this story. It's Matthew 14. If you read their versions, they tell you right up front, Jesus didn't go with them. Jesus sent them. He went off to pray. Remember, I mentioned that before. The way John tells the story, you don't actually know if Jesus is with them in the boat. So we read in verse 15 that he withdrew to the mountain by himself. But then verse 16 says... It's not clear to us if Jesus is with them or not. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat. And you don't know for sure as a reader whether Jesus is with them or not. John holds that detail to verse 17. And because he wants us to see the theological connection. It was nighttime and Jesus wasn't there. It was dark and Jesus wasn't there. And and we're actually, we're meant to connect the two. It's dark when Jesus isn't present. So that's the second detail, which is going to pile on and add to their anxiety and their fear. Uh, the third detail is the wind, and this is just, uh, this is just the physical reality, verse 18. Uh, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And so a storm came up, a little squall. Um, easy for me to call it little, I guess. It's a squall. A storm blows up on the Sea of Galilee. A lot of this has to do with the the topography of the region. Uh, The Sea of Galilee is actually below sea level. It's one of the few, I don't know if it's the only, but it's one of the, it's relatively rare for a a freshwater lake to be below sea level like that. But this one is, it's about 600 feet below sea level. And when the sun goes down there in Israel, uh, what will happen is the air will cool quickly up on the sea level part, the plateau, and it'll, because of the way the land is shaped, it'll rush down into that basin. Uh, where the Sea of Galilee is located. And so it doesn't happen every single day, but it's, it's common enough, especially at certain times of year, that, that you'll get these pop-up storms soon after the sunset. So the sun, sun goes down, and then these, these storms, the, the cool air will come rushing down, and you'll get these little, these little storms. And, and that's what they're, they're in. Just from the description, it's pretty clear that that's what they're dealing with. And they're fierce, right? It's a physically frightening situation. Their, their wind is blowing, it's howling, it's, way to think about it. And then the fourth detail is the waters are rough. It's connected to the, to the wind. The wind's blowing. It stirs up the water, so the waters are rough. Physically, that's frightening, right? They're not in some big ocean liner. They're in a, a relatively small fishing boat, right? And so that's what they're in. So the waters are rough. That's physically frightening. But then it's also, again, John is, is the one who's really going to drive these sorts of details home. He's also reminding us of that, of the spiritual fear, the spiritual darkness. This is another part of that theme. Um, the sea, especially for, for, it's actually true for ancients in general, the ancient people in general, but especially the Hebrews thought this way. Uh, the sea was a dangerous, disorderly, chaotic, and therefore evil place. Right? The sea was a symbol of evil, which is why when you read in the book of Revelation that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will no longer be any sea. It's not because God hates the oceans. God made the oceans. The reason Revelation will tell us there will no longer be any sea in the new heavens and the new earth is it's a symbol of how there's no evil. There's no chaos. There's no disorder in, in, the, ultimate, in the ultimate state where we're going to be with the Lord forever. And so 
these rough waters, right? You look at that and you go, well, that sounds kind of scary to be in a boat and you're tossed around. Yeah, it is. And add on top of that, the fact that the sea is to them this portend, this place of, of, of chaos and evil. And so this is a frightening situation. I know it's a short passage and, and you can read these things and they become familiar and you just move by them quickly, but they are on the sea. The wind is howling. The waves are roaring. It's dark out. They're surrounded by darkness. And Jesus, whom they've come to depend on, is nowhere to be seen. In fact, he sent them ahead without him. He's not there for them. And so all of that makes this a frightening situation. I said a few minutes ago that uh, we talked about fear during uh, Christmas, during Advent this year. And and a a couple of Sundays ago, uh, particular, two, two Sundays ago, I... I made a list, and I don't know how many people were here that Sunday or caught that sermon, but I made a list, and we talked about how Jesus was born to defeat the devil, and one of the benefits of Jesus defeating the devil is he helps us overcome our fears. And I went through in that sermon, and I listed, and I went on for quite a while, uh, of listing all these different sorts of things that people have to be afraid of in the world today. And it was a long list, because there's a lot of things, right? A lot of things people are afraid of. And I was thinking about this sermon, and I thought, you know, I could make a whole nother list. And I could go on even longer than I did that Sunday, and, and I wouldn't even have to have any duplicates, right? I could have a whole new list of new things that, that are frightening. Instead, though, here's what I want to do. I want you to make the list. I want you to make the list. Rather than me kind of telling you what I'm afraid of or what other people are afraid of, let me just ask the question of you. I'm not, we're not going to do raise your hands kind of a thing, but just what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? And if afraid seems too strong a word, someone's like, I'm not afraid. Well, then let's try anxious or worried. What are you worried about? What are you anxious about? Because in the end, there's not really, it's just there, I think it's the same thing on, on a continuum. Anxiety, fear, worry. Uh, what, what, what stirs in you these days? Is it something connected to somebody you love? Right? That's, that's a big one, right? especially locally. Somebody died in our community, which is terrifying. I found that terrifying that that can happen like that. Some of you experience the same thing. Maybe it's something else connected to someone you love. Is there something like that that stirs fear in you or anxiety? Does it have to do with your business, your job, your career, something work-related, something going on with your company or in your field? Or is there something like that? Does it have to do with something with school? Right? We have a lot of students home for the holidays, off on break. Is, is there something at school or about school that provokes anxiety or fear for you? Uh, is it maybe something in the news? Maybe you're, you're in a real place of peace these days personally, but then you, know, you, you, make, you, know, you get on social media or you read a newspaper or however, however you get news, and, and, and there are different things that are frightening. Is it something like that? Maybe it's none of those. Maybe that's why I'm doing it this way. You know, you, you, it's something I haven't thought of, but for you, it's very real. It's very present. What would you say? If you're a note taker, maybe you'll even write it down in the outline there. Or just scribble in the margin or write on the back of it and fold it closed because you don't want anyone to see it. That's fine. But what would you say? Well, hopefully we all have something in mind. Uh, fix that there. We're going to come back to it later. Let's look at the story now. Let, and let's, let's go back to John and, and see what happens next. Let's see what happens next. Because what happens next is that our story takes a surprising turn. Right? An unexpected help, helper shows up in this terrifying situation. It's verse 19. We read, When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. 
and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. So the disciples had sailed uh, between three and four miles, and, and that's important because it means they were far enough out that it wasn't worth it to go back. Uh, the Sea of Galilee isn't huge, and, and so that, you know, that would kind of put them... Actually, I don't know that they were le leaving from exactly the other side either. They're probably cutting a, an angle across. And so um, they've gone far enough that it's not worth it to go back. I think that's the significance of the three to four miles. And so they're just going to have to press through. They're far enough out, they've got to press through to get to the, to get to the other side. Uh, however, the storm was so bad, there's another clue here, actually, how bad the storm is. They are rowing. Right? They're not trying to catch the nice breeze here. It's too strong for that. So they've had to drop the sails, and now they're having to row against the wind and the waves. And that's bad enough. I tried to paint that a few minutes ago, but now it goes from bad to worse. It really does in verse 19, because on top of everything else they've been dealing with, now they see a ghost. And that's what, um, actually, Matthew and Mark tell us that. John doesn't report that they thought they saw a ghost, but Matthew and Mark tell us directly that they thought they saw a ghost. And the reason they think they, think they see a ghost is they look up and they see a person walking toward them on the sea, right? A person walking on the sea. Uh, people don't walk on the sea, right? That's not a thing. We, 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 we don't do that. And, and again, John and, uh, at this point, Matthew and Mark tell us they thought they saw a ghost. John keeps it simple. John keeps it simple. He just says, they were, we were scared. They, they were frightened, he reports, when they saw a person walking toward them. By the way, uh, parenthetically here, the fact that they were frightened eliminates the possibility that Jesus was walking on a sandbar. You ever run, run into that one on this text? Some, you know, some skeptic will be like, oh, he wasn't really walking on the water. There was a sandbar there, and he was kind of walking on the sandbar, making it look like he was on the water. Uh, these guys know these waters. They are fishermen in these waters, right? And, and if, if, I mean, goodness, if there was a sandbar that came right up to the boat, what are they afraid of, right? And, and if, they, if they saw this person and they knew the person was walking on a sandbar, they wouldn't be afraid. They'd be like, ah, Jesus, that's a good one. Get over here and help us row, right? That, but no, they are frightened precisely because it's not a sandbar, right? So you can kind of toss that one out if somebody ever tries to, to play that one on you. Uh, and, and so, you know, they don't conclude it's a person walking on a sandbar. They conclude it's a ghost. Except it's not a ghost. John actually tells us this. In verse 19, he lets us in on it as a reader. In verse 19, we get to know it's Jesus. Uh, they find out it's Jesus in verse 20. And I, I do think that's how this is to be read. John tells the reader it's Jesus in verse 19, but they don't know it's Jesus until verse 20, right? Verse 20 is where they figure out who it is. Verse 20 says... But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Have you ever wondered why? You've, you've met, most of you anyway have read this story before. Have you ever wondered why Jesus walked on the water? Why did he walk on the water? Why did he do that? Uh, Mark Twain once joked that he walked on the water because he didn't want to pay somebody to take him out. Uh, he, he wanted to, you know, Jesus was too cheap, he said. He, I'm paraphrasing Mark Twain. But Jesus didn't want to pay the fare, so he just walked out to them instead. Uh, Twain was wrong, obviously. Uh, seriously, why? Why did Jesus walk on the water? Because think about it. You said, well, he had to get to them, right? Well, he didn't have to. He could have just stopped the storm from the shore. Right? I mean, he's healed people from great distances. He's done, I mean, he could have just kind of, we, we know he was praying. He could have just looked up from where he was praying and said, oh, storm, stop, storm, and be done. Right? Because he could do that. Um, but he doesn't, right? He doesn't do that. 
Or how about this? Why doesn't he just let them tough it out? He does that sometimes. Right? Why not just let them tough it out? Uh, don't confuse this passage with another one. There's another storm where Jesus is in the boat with them and he falls asleep. Do you remember that one? This, that's a different time. So he's in the boat with them, he falls asleep, and that text very specifically tells us the boat was being swamped. They were in danger of sinking. And, and so that time, the boat was going to go down. It's a worse storm than this one is. And they wake him up and he calms the storm. He stops the storm miraculously. That's not this one. This storm, I, I think there's enough clues here to argue this storm isn't quite as bad as, as that other storm. So why doesn't he let them just kind of tough it out and maybe kind of guide them gently from the distance? Why does he walk out to them on the water? I think there are two answers in verse 20, and they're, they're both important, actually, to the theology of this text. The first is that he does it to show he is God. He does it to show he's God. You see, in John, in the narrative, the story John's telling, he actually has a series of signs miracles in which Jesus demonstrates that he is God. And the first of those signs is the water and the wine miracle in John chapter 2. There's a whole series of them that runs through, runs through the book, and this is one of them. And I say that because of how Jesus identifies himself when he comes to them. And so he comes, he gets close enough that they can hear him, and he says something to them. He says, it's I. It is I. Or, or more simply, just a more, it's, it's awkward in English, and so they don't usually do it this way, but what he says is, I am. In Greek, it's the words ego, amy. I am. That's who's walking out to you or on the water. And what that does for us, and it probably did it for them too, although maybe not in that instant because they were, had so much going on, but what that does for us is it takes us back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 3, God appears to Moses in a burning bush in the, in the wilderness. And Moses says to God, what is your name? What shall I tell them is your name? And God says, I am. Same Hebrew versus Greek, but it's the same answer. It's the same, it's the same phrase. It's the same answer that Jesus gives in verse 20. And, and as I say, it's not clear if the, if the disciples kind of saw that connection in the moment, uh, but they certainly saw it after the fact. They absolutely understood after the fact that Jesus was, we actually call it a theophany. It was an appearance of God. He reveals himself to his disciples as God by walking out to them on the water. So that's one of the reasons, that, and that's one of the reasons this text is significant in John. But there's also a more personal reason. I call it a devotional reason, if you like, that Jesus walks on the water, and it is simply so that he can go help them. He's going out to help his guys. Right? He's going out to help them in the middle of this fearful situation. And, and I say that because of what he follows up with. So you get the theophany. It is I. He identifies himself as God. And then he says, don't be afraid. It is I. Don't be afraid. So why did Jesus come out to them in person? He went out to them in person because he cared. He cared about them. He went out to them to help them deal with their fear. Verse 21 tells us how they responded to all that. So, verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Two things happen in verse 21, and this is where we get the bright lamps that I promised you at the end. Two bright lamps for our own dark days, because this is not just how Jesus dispels the darkness for the disciples, it's how he dispels the darkness of fear for us as well. So number one, the first bright lamp we see in verse 21 is to focus on the presence of Jesus. Focus on him. Focus on the fact that Jesus is with you. 
and, and welcome him uh, into whatever it is you're facing. Right, so, so think back to those struggles and those, those fears, anxieties, worries that we identified a few minutes ago. When we struggle with those things, one of the very best ways to handle it is to welcome Jesus into the situation, to focus on the presence of Jesus. Because that's what the disciples do. Right? Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And so he comes to them in the middle of their fear, this frightening situation. They're afraid. It's dark. They're afraid of him even. It's all this fearful situation. He comes. He says, don't be afraid. And they say, great. Get in the boat. Come on in, Jesus. Come on into the boat. And that's exactly what we need to do. We need to consciously invite Jesus into the midst of the fearful situations of our lives. Here, I've got to work at least one Christmas passage in here. How about Matthew? Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, it's, it's, uh, it's Matthew's reflection on the, the miraculous conception. Uh, he says, they shall call him Emmanuel. Matthew 1, 23, they shall call him Emmanuel, and then he translates, which means God with us. God with us. You actually get the same thing at the end of Matthew. This is a theme in Matthew, too. Matthew 28, 20, last verse of the book. Behold, Jesus says, I am with you always. I am with you always. Emmanuel, at the end of the book, before he ascends back into heaven, says, I'm with you, even to the end of the age. Which means Jesus is with us. He's with us right now, just as much as he was with those disciples in that boat. So remember that. Focus on that. Uh, memorize verses like Hebrews 13, 6. They're so helpful. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. Why? Because he's with me. He's with us. God is with us. Um, he's, he's here to help us in whatever that fearful situation or those situations are. Number two, the second bright lamp we see in verse 21 is that we need to trust Jesus with the outcome. Trust him with the outcome. When we are feeling anxious and afraid, there's a choice to be made, and the choice is to choose to trust him <clears throat> with, with the destination or with, with the outcome. See, many people think with this text that there's a second miracle. There's a second miracle at the end of verse 21. The first miracle is Jesus walking on the water, right? That's, that is a miraculous uh, thing that he does there. The second miracle is, is there at the very end. Immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Immediately. And if we take those words at face value, which is how we should take Scripture, unless Scripture itself tells us to take it otherwise, uh, if we take those words at face value is saying that Jesus miraculously brought them to the shore because a minute ago they were in the middle of things still. Right? And, and, and so he takes them to the shore. And so it's interesting. You compare it to that other one I mentioned before where he was sleeping in the back of the boat because he was tired. Uh, that time he calmed the storm. There's no indication here that he calms the storm. Right? Sometimes he stops the storms. Sometimes he doesn't stop the storms. Right? And that's what you have here. But, it, but in this case, he just moves the boat. Right? He, he just brings a speedy end to the whole thing in some miraculous way. It reminds me of that time when Philip preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch. Do you remember that story in Acts, Acts chapter 8? And Philip gets debaptizes the man. And then Philip woof, is elsewhere. God puts him somewhere else. I, I, I think this is like that. Just a guess, but that's how the language sort of describes it here for us. And so that detail that he gets them to where they were going is very important here because it shows us that he's in control of the outcome. And so we can trust him with the outcome one way or another. 
Right? One way or another, maybe he'll stop the storm, maybe he'll get us through it real quickly, maybe he'll keep us in the storm, but he'll guide us through it all the way. One way or another, he will get us to where he wants us to go. Because that's the other detail that hangs here. And again, John doesn't emphasize it a whole lot, but the others do. He told them to go there. They weren't being rebels when they got into the boat at sunset and started sailing for Capernaum. They were doing what he said to do. He sent them to the other side of the lake. And now he makes sure they make it. Which tells us he had the whole thing under control. The whole time he had the whole thing under control from beginning to end. Despite the storm, despite the wind and the waves and all the rest of it. And the same thing is true for you and me. You know, sometimes you may not even know what the destination is right now. Some, the, the thing you, you're thinking of and you're looking at and you're struggling with, you may not even know where the outcome is. You may not know where it's headed. You may not know what, what direction this boat's going. But Jesus knows. He knows the end from the beginning. And he will get you there. He will get you where he wants you to go. And so when you feel anxious, when you feel afraid, remind yourself of this. Remind yourself <clears throat> that you can trust him. You can trust him with the outcome. We're going to close in prayer uh, now. I'm going to close my part, and then Andrew and his team will come back and lead. But uh, I want to close just a little different than usual, um, maybe just a little more time for personal reflection in this prayer. Because what I want you to do now is I want you to go back to that thing I asked you to think about before. And you might have written down more than one. Maybe you wrote down two. That's fine. Uh, but if you wrote something down or if it's just in your head, whatever you ended up kind of settling on, I want you to think about that thing. That, that's worrying you, that's maybe stirring some fear inside of you. Uh, let's bring that thing to the Lord, right? What a great way to end what has been a tough year, and we don't know what the next year holds, but we know who holds the next year, right? To, to, to quote that old, that old uh, hymn. And so let's bring it to the Lord. Let's welcome him into the boat with this thing that we're facing. Uh, that really is the best way. There's really no other better way I can think of to handle it than to bring Jesus into the middle of it. So let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we believe that you are the light of the world. You are the one, uh, the light who has shone into these lands of deep darkness. And we praise you for that. We worship you. We celebrate you. We welcome you, Lord, into, uh, into our world in, in this kind of this new way where we get to rehearse it again every year with, with, with another Christmas just to remind ourselves and to declare that we welcome you into our lives and into our world. And, and so, Lord, we adore you, we glorify you, and Lord, we trust you. Uh, we bring you these areas of fear, Lord. Some of them are old year fears, and some of them are new year fears about the future, but whatever they are, we bring them to you. They're different for every one of us. I'm sure there's some overlap with this many people, but uh, we, these are personal things we're wrestling with. And so we just take a few minutes here, moments in and just the quiet for each of us just to pray and offer these things up to you and to bring you into the middle of these scary situations.